Welcome to the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Hosted by John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 13 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Ooh, scary episode 13. But today we'll be interviewing John Langan. He's a new, uh, very exciting new horror writer. And so we thought it would be really good to have him on for episode 13. Nicely appropriate. It wasn't, it wasn't by accident or anything. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, like, we didn't plan it like that. But you can just assume anything we do, we didn't plan it like that because we don't plan anything. <laughs> Uh, but it worked out really nicely, and uh, John Langan is a really fun, interesting guy. So uh, we're just we're really happy he could join us. Uh, he's the author of his his first novel, uh, House of Windows, is out from Nightshade Books, um, and he had a recent collection called Mister Gaunt and Other Uneasy Encounters. And actually, he's a he's a uh, professor at SUNY New Paltz, and he organized a conference years ago called the Fantastic Genres Conference, which was actually the first place that John and I really hung out. You know, we had met at the, uh, you know, the Science Fiction Writers of America has a reception in New York City every year. And so we had actually met there and sparks were flying and everything. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but the first time we really hung out was at this Fantastic Genres Conference. So we really have to thank John Langan or blame him, depending yeah. on your point of view, for... Uh, for, for John and I knowing each other and for uh, Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And then uh, hang around after the interview where John and I will, will be talking about scary, scary stuff. All right, let's get John Langan on the phone. Hello? Hi, it's Dave and John from Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And it's John Langan here. Um, okay, so first of all, uh, who are some of the authors you read when you were younger who made you want to be a writer yourself, and what sort of early writing did you do before breaking into print? I read a lot of comic books when I was a kid. I've been rereading Doctor Strange lately, the uh, the Marvel, uh, what do they call it, Essential, or, or whatever, these big sort of uh, black and white uh, you know, paperback reprints. And I was, I've been reading a lot of them recently and, and realizing that... Uh, if I'm talking, going to talk about influences on my work, uh, in some ways I have to talk about, about those guys first. Uh, when I was a kid, Marv Wolfman was doing a lot of work in Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four, and I was reading those. And then I was going back, and I was, I was reading Stan Lee's original, uh, original Fantastic Four and, and Spider-Man. Um, I was reading Roy Thomas writing Conan the Barbarian. And, uh, and you know, those... Uh, those led me into into some of my, I guess, what uh, pr print reading, fiction reading. I, I read, uh, you know, the Conan the Barbarian. Actually, it was the series that uh, Lynn Carter and Elspreg de Camp had sort of edited, cobbled together out of uh, Robert E. Howard's original stories and then their own editions. I read, uh, I read almost all of those. I think in fifth grade math class, uh, literally behind the cover, you know, with the book, the book raised, <laughs> the math book raised, and Conan behind the cover. All the, you know, so all of those I really see as as lying in my background and, and being really important um, to to me to, to who I eventually became as a writer. Having said all that, it really wasn't until I was a freshman in high school, and I read Stephen King, I read Christine, and I felt as if I'd been discovered. It, it's a sort of strange uh, strange feeling. I read that book and thought, man, this this is it. This. Uh, this book has almost, you know, sort of picked me out and told me this is what you have to do. You you have to do this kind of thing. As far as early writing goes, 
Um, I can go all the way back to first grade. <laughs> A short illustrated story I did of King Kong versus Godzilla. Talk about fan fiction. Uh, but it was really done so that I could just draw the picture of King Kong and Godzilla. Um, it, it really, um, it really wasn't until I was I was in high school, and you know, when I when I read King, one of the first things that made me want to do was was do this stuff myself. And uh, I, I won the uh, Our Lady of Lourdes High School Christmas Writing Contest when I was uh, 14, my, my freshman year in, in high school, for a story about uh, a Christmas story about a little kid whose toys uh, come to life and kill his father. My dad was really bugged out <laughs> by that story. I could never understand why. <laughs> um, I got a check for 12.50, and I got printed in the uh, in the school newspaper, and um, probably in in some in some ways I was lost right then, <laughs> lost for serious literature. But I, you know that was um, I printed some stuff, I published some stuff when I was in college in sort of the local uh, the, the the school literary journal. But it really wasn't until I I was in my my late 20s that I came back to writing horror fiction. Um, I had been writing all all throughout my twenties. I'd, I'd written a very long novel, um, a short novel, a bunch of novellas. I guess more or less realist works, and they just hadn't gone anywhere. I'd written some much shorter things that I'd sent out to various literary journals. They hadn't gone anywhere. And uh, then when I got together with my wife, um, I, I really I don't know. I guess I guess <laughs> sounds terrible to say I got together with my wife and I started writing horror stories, <laughs> but we she really helped me to to that horror fiction could be a, a legitimate venue for for serious expression. She was doing her dissertation in Jack Kerouac and and we would have these conversations and she would say, "Well, you know, Kerouac believed that American popular culture is a suitable container for all kinds of of serious expression." And that just did it. That just opened things up. It just kind of, I don't know, liberated me, gave me permission to do, to, to go back to, to what I had loved as a kid, um, but bring to it now all this stuff that I'd learned, you know, to say the decade before working on these other novels and, and stories and such. And, and in turn, I guess, also to kind of go back to writers like Straub um, and, and Samuel Delaney, whose, whose work has also been very important to me. And and to to sort of look at their example and say, here are these. Look at what these guys have done in these in these generic forms. And uh, you know, maybe someone else could do that too. What scare? What what works of fiction have scared you the most uh, throughout your life? When I was a kid, I can remember being very vividly scared by a Robert E. Howard story. I want to say it's called The Thing from the Mound. Uh, I may be wrong about that. It was in an anthology called Wolf's Head and other stories which I really need to find a copy of one of these days because I just, I just remember being blown away by that anthology. Uh, it, was, it was no Conan stories. It was just other kinds of Howard stories. And, and, and The Thing from the Mound was about a guy who uh, is, is treasure hunting in the sort of Texas wilds and uh, basically unleashes this vampire this, this, who's been you know, buried, uh, well, not alive, but undead in this, uh, in this mound. And uh, and that just I remember that story just absolutely terrifying me. I actually I just read you know there's a uh, the horror stories of Robert E. Howard I just read that and so I just read that Beneath the Mound story uh, whatever the title is and, um, and I, I I I really love that story and uh, like you, you think you know where it's going throughout the entire story step by step and then at the very end it just <laughs> completely it's a complete surprise what happens at the end at least it was to me. Yeah, I, I kind of, you know, Howard is one of those writers. I, I mean, I, 
I read him when I was a kid. Um, as I said, I read a lot of, of mostly Conan stuff, I guess, but you know some other stuff here and there. And he's he's one of those writers that I suppose as you get older, you know, you you, you kind of feel as if you should outgrow, I guess. And you know, he certainly has his limitations, but there, there's a lot about him that that I find of of kind of enduring fascination. And and uh, even if if uh, you know whatever, not all of his style is particularly felicitous or or whatever, um, or his attitudes towards all manner of subjects are, are particularly progressive. Still, there, there's a kind of a there is a kind of raw power to what he's doing. I, I think. I'm trying to think. I think I was talking. I was talking to Jack Haringa and uh, and Michael Morano about this uh, at Boscone. Um, I think it was Michael who said that Howard believes everything he writes, and I think he's probably right. I, I think he's probably right that the 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 good or bad, right or wrong, Howard is invested in what he's writing, and I think that comes across in a way that you know it doesn't always for a lot of his sort of lesser imitators. Uh, so you're an English professor. Uh, what got you started on that career path, and how has being a professor uh, affected your writing? I, I came back to, to graduate school in my in my mid twenties after uh, after I'd, I'd kind of been out in the world for, for a few years, and um, my dad had died. I I had uh, moved back in to to help my uh, my mom and my younger sister, and um, I I started. I, I wanted to. I don't know, reconnect, um, I, I guess, with uh, academia. And uh, I sat in on a class, um, a spring class in Hemingway and Faulkner and really loved it. And uh, the, the woman who was the chair of the English department at SUNY New Paltz, where I am now, basically offered me a teaching assistantship. And um, pretty, I guess, really, to be fair, really guaranteed me a teaching assistantship for the following fall if I would if I would apply to the program. So I did, and... and um, I don't know. I, I just sort of wound up. I, I kind of fell into it. I, I always knew. It sounds weird to say, but I always knew that that I would be a, a decent teacher. And um, and when I got up in front of the classroom, uh, yeah, <laughs> I was. So it's been, um, in some ways, it's it's been a, a little bit of a balancing act, I guess, as you can imagine. You know, you you want to bring your students something. You don't. You you have to bring something to your classes. You can't save everything for yourself and your writing and, and what have you. So it, it can feel a little bit like you're splitting yourself uh, between the, the work that you're doing for your writing, your, your the concentration, the, the resources you need to muster to do that, and the resources that you need to muster to go into the classroom and, and talk about the, uh, you know, Keats' Ode on a Grecian Urn or something like that. But it, the good thing about it, um, I guess the two good things about it, one is, is that it keeps me in touch with a lot of great writing. And I, I think that's always important for you as a as a writer. What does the computer guy say? You know, garbage in, garbage out. So I, I think you want to stay in touch with with good writing as as much as you can. And so yeah, having to go back and and reread um, lately, the past few years I've been teaching Doris Lessing's uh, Two Room Nineteen a lot. And having to go back and read and reread that has been very useful for me. I, I go back to Flannery O'Connor on a regular basis. I go back to Henry James on a regular basis. So that's all really good. And at the same time, they've been pretty flexible here and. In, in terms of letting me uh, make up new classes. So I've been able to teach classes, uh, summer classes in the Gothic. And so that's allowed me to, to explore some of my own interests a little bit more. And that's also good for the writing. You know, you, you read or reread Frankenstein and think, oh, wow, look at that. You know, there's, there's, <laughs> there's, you could do stuff with this. 
Well, I mean, you had at least one story uh, called Tutorial, which uh, seems pretty obviously affected by your career in academia. Oh, yes, Tutorial. A story that editors everywhere hate, <laughs> um, but that young writers really seem to love. Yeah, when I was when I was an undergraduate at New Paltz, I was really interested in in creative writing as a as a possible major. I was an English major at the time, and um, and the guy who did creative writing had no interest in work that was anything other than a particular kind of of really naturalism, uh, the the sort of the the story about the young college student disenchanted with the world. And I, I had a a friend at the time who was taking. Uh, taking a class with this guy and uh and she was interested in the same kind of stuff i was we were both reading clive barker and everything she tried to write this guy just slammed and and um the creative writing program at new fault has never been big but it was especially small then and it was for me it was really frustrating it was i really wanted to to do all this weird stuff and i i couldn't do it so i think that informed um that, that informed that story to some measure but to be honest, the, the story was also um, it was also informed, I, I guess, later on or, or, or in the years that, that, that passed after that by a number of different occurrences. I, I had sent Mr. Gaunt, which would become my, my second story in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, I had sent it to another publication first, and they rejected it and told me that my writing was murky and I needed to read Strunk and White and Elements of Style. <laughs> and oh boy, was I angry. <laughs> <laughs> And my wife was the one who suggested, well, you know, maybe you could write a story with a kind of, you know, instead of the Necronomicon, it's Strunk and White, you know. Um, and the story sort of grew from there. Um, so, so now that you're a teacher, do you ever feel guilty about reading comic books in math class? <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any when, kids, like, um, reading math books in your class when they're supposed to be right, reading yeah. <laughs> It would serve me right. No, they're all texting each other now in, in, uh, in my classes. No, one thing, you know, one thing I realized uh, a few years ago, which, which in retrospect seems quite obvious to me, but I, I honestly, it occurred to me with the force of, of revelation, was, was that I had um, I'd spent most of my, my young life, as I thought it, you know, sort of goofing off from school. I, I read a lot of comic books. I drew a lot. I, I desperately wanted to be a comic artist when I was when I was in grade school. I would uh, I would trace uh, trace the covers or pages of different comic books. One of my most treasured possessions was how to draw comics the Marvel way, and I would just draw you know obsessively and 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 read these things obsessively. And then when I got to high school, in part I guess because I went to a Catholic high school that had no art program, uh, but also because of discovering Stephen King. It, you know, the, the, it transferred. I, I still read comic books, but I would read a lot of horror stories, a lot of horror novels. If Stephen King said this is worth reading, I would go and read it, which is part of the reason that I came to appreciate Flannery O'Connor. But be, I guess because I, I wasn't the valedictorian or even salutatorian, you know, I always thought of myself as, well, you weren't really much of a student. And, and yet it was a couple of years ago I realized, oh, my God, you were, you were an incredible student. It was just that you were a student of first drawing and, and then this, you know, narrative. You were just doing it outside of, I mean, that kind of study is not what you do in grade school. It's not what you do in high school. You're supposed to be much, you know, that, that kind of studying is supposed to be much more well-rounded, you know, and, and that, I guess from an early age, I kind of knew what I wanted to do and, and pursued it in this single-minded kind of way. Are you aware of any comics that have actually made it into the realm of academia as literature that are being taught in classes, or are, are, are there any professors who are teaching, like, comics as literature? 
Yeah, we, we have a graphic novel class here at, at New Pulse. A lot of the comics, I, I will say to speak more generally, a lot of the comics that have made it into academia are um, oh, things like, like uh, Harvey P. Carr or something, things that, that, that uh, or what was um, something like Ghost World from a, a few years ago. I can't remember the name of the guy who, who did that. But, you know, comics that announce themselves as different from sort of usual superhero fare or something like that. Uh, or Mouse, I guess. That's the big one. Spiegelman's Mouse. There's actually an excerpt from Mouse, I think, in the Northern Anthology in American Literature, hmm. Volume 2, I think. So things like uh, those kinds of things that, that sort of announce themselves as being important and dealing with important subjects, those have been well-received for, for quite quite a few years now. And something like Mouse... Uh, has, has made the sort of furthest inroads into into academia, but I, I think even even now, in a class so like the graphic novel class we have here, I think all of those texts that I just mentioned would be would be taught. I think they also do teach the Watchmen as well, um, and I think I think Watchmen is is probably one of the few what I would think of as a real comic book, I guess you know superheroes. It's it's one of the few things that, that there's sort of wide distribution of. Uh, I have the impression that V for Vendetta may have made it as well, not in our in our school, but I, I have the impression that a lot of Alan Moore's stuff and also Neil Gaiman's stuff, it's kind of like what happens with science fiction or any genre, I guess, you know, where someone like Philip K. Dick makes it really big and everybody reads Philip K. Dick and, and he makes it into the universities. I think the same things kind of happened with, say, like Alan Moore or Neil Gaiman, you know, that, that there's a lot of... Uh, Neil Gaiman, same in particular, his name has had a lot of penetration into academia, and lots of people in my department who've never read Neil Gaiman know who he is because they know that he did work, say, on the Beowulf movie, and they that registers for them because they teach Beowulf. So you started out publishing short stories. Uh, could you tell us about a few of the stories that were major milestones for you, and how did you make the transition to writing a novel? Uh, the first story that I published was called On Skua Island. And I actually wrote it for a class. I was, I was taking uh, doctoral courses at the City University of New York. And uh, one of the classes I, I took was uh, had a creative option as the, for the final project. And, and uh, On Skua Island was the story that came out of, uh, came out of that. And uh, when I was done with it, it was 11 or 12,000 words long. And there was just... I, I thought I would try to publish it, but there was no place. <laughs> None of the little magazines I was looking at would take a 12,000-word you know, novelette. And um, the only place that would was the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And I, I, I was really intimidated about I hadn't I hadn't read FNSF since I was a kid. But still, it had enough of a reputation. You know, a, a new Stephen King, say, had published in it. I was uh, I was really a bit uh, intimidated by it, and much more inclined to start at the bottom. You know, to try to try to find some little magazine that would publish my ridiculously long story. But uh, again, my wife, I guess, you know, helped me out here. She had gotten her PhD at, at Penn State. And her professors had told her for publishing academic articles, you always start at the top. You always start at the top, and then you work your way down. And so she said, start at the top. So I, I, sent, I sent the story in to, uh, to FNSF, uh, fully expecting a rejection letter. And uh, much to my surprise, a check showed up. I can still remember being in my bathrobe <laughs> at the end of the driveway, opening the mailbox, and here was this envelope from FNSF, and I was, you know, not, not the envelope I had sent them to return my story in. 
And I can still remember splitting it open, and here was this check, and I was just out of my mind. Very quickly after it had been accepted, I, I wrote the, the first draft of my second, what would be my second story, Mr. Gaunt, which, as I said, was rejected by, uh, by another magazine uh, pretty quickly. So, so that helped to keep my ego in check, I suppose. And that story did require a, a bit more revision. But there, there was sort of, you know, I, I wrote basically three stories uh, on School Island, uh, uh, Mr. Gaunt and Tutorial, uh, in relatively soon, one after the other. They appeared, each one, sort of over the course of, of three years. And then um, I, I came to write my my first novel um, basically be, because I, I was I was looking. My wife was was pregnant with uh, with our son, and I was looking to write one more story and send that into Gordon's. So it would kind of because it usually I was it was sort of a lag time of about a year between the time that I I sent him a story and the time he published it. And I was looking to have a, a sort of a story in reserve with him, I guess, for, for my son being born, because I knew that I wouldn't get much writing done. But that story uh, turned into a novel, um, which uh, just kind of kept going. It, it just uh, There was more, more of it that wanted to be told. And to be quite honest, I stopped that to write what actually did become my first novel. So, so what I thought was going to be my first novel, I put aside to write what I thought was going to be another short story. And then that story just grew and grew, and that became um, what since been published as my first novel, House of Windows. So uh, what's so scary about A House of Windows? To me, it sounds very pleasant and sunny. You have to dress in the basement, of course, for one thing. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> all those kids with their stones. <laughs> it's... Uh, in in the novel, the house there's the suggestion that the the house has the the capacity to to bring to light um, to to manifest I, I I guess what's what's worst within us and um, whether you know the the novel leaves open the question of of whether the house itself whether there's just something wrong with the house itself or or whether there's some kind of you know malevolent entity that's attached itself to the house, um, sort of uh, uh, haunting the house or possessing the house or something like that. But the, the house is, uh, in, in a way, you know, the house is a mirror. It's, it's a window that you can see yourself in with all your flaws. And all those, that, that, that mirror brings all those flaws to life. So in uh, in House of Windows and On School Island, uh, they they have a very similar structure to them. Uh, they're both uh, about a group of people at a house telling scary stories. What draws you to that type of storytelling, where the actual storytelling is integral to the piece? Well, when I wrote On School Island, that was in in part it was a very it was part of a class that was uh, it was written as 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 a final assignment for a class that was about kind of postmodern takes on Victorian literature. And so that, I, I suppose, the structure of Onskua Island, having a bunch of people sitting around telling a story, and then we get the, the, the story they tell, or that one of them tells, is the principal material of the story. That was really indebted, I guess, to, to certain earlier narratives, like, say, you know, Henry James, The Turn of the Screw, is, is one of the big ones. But, um, but, you know, I've read a lot of Joseph Conrad in my life, and, and that's a structure that Conrad likes as well, uh, obviously, in something like, like Heart of Darkness. So... Um, it was it was very much a form that had a kind of a rich tradition associated with it, and it seemed quite fun to to play with and to to exploit, especially since I could have my people in the in the beginning of the story uh, on Skua Island, talking about horror stories. So you could have this nice meta kind of thing going on. When I started House of Windows, I actually intended that to be 
sort of a sequel to, to Onskua Island in that I thought, okay, I'll write another story where it's the same group of people or, or more or less the same group of people. They're back at this house, and here's someone who has another scary story. And I actually imagined that, that ultimately I could have a sort of a series of these, of these stories, um, collect them in a book, you know, and, and it would be something that I could just return to every, every so often. Oh, here we are back at this house. Um, I, I may have had, um, not not to not to claim more illustrious precedents than I than I actually have, but I, I may have had um, Isaac Bastian the singer in mind, and in a number of his stories, uh, he'll write he'll he'll write from the point of view of a narrator who seems to be ostensibly singer himself, and he gets a knock on his door, and he opens the door, and there's an old man or an old woman or whatever standing outside the door who says, "Are you singer the writer?" And he says, "Yes, I am." And they say, "Oh, have I got a story for you?" And they come in and they tell him this story. I mean, you know, certainly when I was a student, if I had had a professor like you who was actually knowledgeable about horror and could teach me things like that, I would have been ecstatic. I mean, do you see do you see any of that from your students where they're like, oh, wow, a cool young professor who is interested in this stuff, too? No, sadly, they all hate me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm forever railing about uh, what is it? RateMyProfessor.com because I don't get any hot chili peppers. You know, there's (laughs) other people in the. Other people in the English department get their hot chili peppers, and I'm like, where's my hot chili pepper? And my wife just pats my head. Um, I, uh, um, I, I don't know. I honestly, I honestly don't know. Um, you know, I think when it comes to teaching, especially teaching creative writing, I, I feel very much I want to give to my creative writing students the kind of opportunity I didn't have as an undergraduate, you know, which is to explore this stuff if, if that's what they're interested in. So if they want to write science fiction, fantasy, horror, mystery fiction, you know, anything that, that we recognize, we sort of throw under that great big label of genre, I want to give them the opportunity to work in that. At the same time, I don't want to just flip the, you know, turn the tables and say, ah, you can't write your story about your pathetic life as an undergraduate, you know? No, if, if you want to write, you know, if you want to work in a, in a realist tradition, whatever, you know, Raymond Carver, Tobias Wolf, something like that, um, you should be able to do that, too. So uh, you've, expre- you've expressed an admiration for the writings of Henry James. Uh, what about him appeals to you, and how has that affected your writing? Well, I, I think with, with James, I hated James. I, I, I have to make it clear. You know, when I read James, in, uh, I had to read him as a senior in high school. I had to read The Turn of the Screw. You would think if any story would be good for a young horror writer, it would be, it would be The Turn of the Screw. Oh, and I hated him with a passion. I, I just, uh, you know, I, I thought, oh, my God, why can't you just get to the point? And um, I wasn't ready for him. You know, it, it's, um, and that's, that's fun. It wasn't the first time I read Dickens. It was the same thing. I read Dickens when I was a sophomore. No, actually, I was a junior. I read Great Expectations, and I hated it. And it was only, you know, in, in the case of Dickens, like 10 years later that I read him, and I was like, wow, this guy's great. With, in, in the case of James, it, it took a couple more years till I was in uh, college, and, and I read his very late ghost story, The Jolly Corner, and it just blew me away. It's about a man who's being haunted by the ghost of the man he could have been. And it just and, and the, it always amazes me in retrospect that I that I should have that should have been the story of James that worked for me because it was a it's 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 a very hard story to read it's very densely written but for whatever reason I was just in the right headspace to get it and I just thought this guy's a genius I've got to I've I've got to completely you know change my mind about this guy I've got to I've got to reread him I think what's what's fascinated me 
as I, as I continue to come back to James, is that so much of James's stuff is, is pure melodrama. It's, it's if, if, you, if you dig just a little bit under that glittering prose, you've got these stories that are the, are the things of Gothic melodrama, and, and yet he's just <laughs> he's covering it over with all this fine prose. Uh, have you gotten any feedback from readers that was interesting on, on anything that you've written? When uh, I published my story tutorial, there's a, a detail in there about a uh, um, a tiny little sword. It's like a letter opener that the evil sort of supernatural figure has that he can stab the student's paper with, and it like stabs the student, <laughs> makes the student hurt. And I had uh, one woman send me an email saying, "Where can I get one of those?" <laughs> Obviously, it was meant humorously, but it still creeped me out. Great. So, uh, what are you working on now, and what do you have uh, coming up? Well, I've, I've just had a short story, well, uh, actually a novelette, I guess, called uh, City of the Dog that appeared in the, the January-February issue of uh, FNSF. It was also released for that, that time period on uh, Su, Su Voodoo. And uh, in uh, April, I think it is, I have a story called The Shallows, which will be appearing in an anthology called Cthulhu's Reign, uh, which has been edited by Daryl Schweitzer, and uh, which is an anthology predicated on the idea that Cthulhu has won. The, the old ones have come back. The, the earth is now under the sway of all these Lovecraftian monsters. What happens next? Uh, I, have, uh, I have a couple of stories out right now. Uh, I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen with, uh, with them, but uh, hopefully, you know, hopefully they'll be, uh, they'll be accepted. And then uh, a lot on the horizon. I've, I'm uh, trying to finish four different stories for four different anthologies. Uh, my, uh, my second novel, I'm trying to, uh, to put together the uh, I've got about I've got about sixty percent of the novel done. I'm at the point of of trying to put together the um, a synopsis of the rest so that my agent can shop it around, and uh, along with that, my my second story collection. And I've got a couple of other novel projects. Um, I'm trying to come up with outlines for. So it's uh, it's it's busy. It's it's uh, it's busy, but I'm not complaining. Hmm. Uh, I might give a I don't know I might give a shout out I guess to um, a couple of novels and and uh, yeah, I guess a couple of novels published recently if people are looking for other good things to read and I do think that Sarah Langan's new novel Audrey's Door uh, she's no relation um, but I, I think she's a brilliant writer and I, I think that this I think she just goes from strength to strength and I would also uh, throw out Sarah Waters' novel of a Little Stranger. Which, uh, of course, you know, got lots of favorable attention from Stephen King and Entertainment Weekly. Well, wow, you can't do much better than Stephen King and Entertainment Weekly and being mentioned on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> you know, it sort of covers from A to Z, you know? <laughs> All right, well, John Langan, author of House of Windows, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And thank you very much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to John Langan for joining us on the show. So uh, I hope that that interview gave you a sense of how funny John Langan is and how much fun he is to hang out with. And I was thinking, actually, that a lot of people, I think, probably have this stereotype of horror writers as kind of like disturbed, you know, creepy loners, sort of. And it, it was funny, you know, when I first kind of started meeting other writers and things, somebody told me that actually most horror writers 
are really well adjusted and that actually <laughs> that, that most horror writers have the kind of personality that you would expect a comedian to have and that most comedians have the kind of personality that you would expect a horror writer to have you know that the horror writers all seem to be jolly and the uh, comedians all seem to be morose and uh, obviously nothing like that is universally true but it's it's certainly been true to a surprising extent among the people that i've met you know i mean i've heard the same thing and uh and i, I and i've certainly witnessed the fact that most horror writers do seem to be jolly as you say you know uh, you know i've never I, I don't know that i've met one that actually is the sort of brooding morose uh figure that you expect them to be based on what they write but i mean it kind of makes sense uh to me you know just that you know, if if you have these sort of dark thoughts and stuff in your head, I mean, the the horror writers get them all out on the page, and maybe that just sort of cleanses their mind from having to deal with it or think about it. Whereas for a comedian, I guess kind of the opposite happens. You know, it's like you you put all the the mirth and uh, good times into your comedy, and then um, and then so you're left with you know just the bad stuff in your head. Mm-hmm. And probably if you're a comedian, everyone you meet is like, hey, tell me a joke, <laughs> and that gets to yeah. be really depressing after a while. <laughs> It also seems to me like if you're a comedian, that most good comedy comes out of being able to see through people's illusions, you know, see through BS. Mm -hmm. And it seems like a lot of people, what gets them through the day is BS. And Mm -hmm. so if you can see through all of that, I guess it can be pretty uh, discouraging. You know, like I've heard that Douglas Adams, you know, which is one of the funniest science fiction writers, kind of struggled with depression himself. Um, But then, you know, like with horror writers... Another thing also might just be that if you spend all day thinking about the worst things that could happen to people, that your own life doesn't seem so bad by comparison. Mm. You're like, well, nobody hung me up on a meat hook today, so <laughs> I guess this must have been a good day. But there is, there is, it seems like, kind of this connection between horror and humor, because horror and humor are two genres where you're trying to evoke a, an involuntary response, a sort of physical involuntary response, you know, either laughter or sort of visceral fear and uh and you know a lot of times when people are scared they'll laugh because they just you know they have to do something to release the tension and a lot of times horror when it fails evokes laughter right i mean there's there's really nothing funnier than a really (laughs) bad horror movie right you just sit around with your friends and all just laugh at it Mm -hmm. so i think that might be another reason why horror writers it seems are so well adjusted is that they have to have a good sense of humor to do what they do. You know, like I don't, I don't write a ton of horror, but I certainly write some and a lot of my stuff, even if it's not horror has kind of a darkness to it. And people will ask me, so, so I get asked a lot. People will say, you know, why, why would you write a story about chainsawing a busload of nuns? (laughs) And, and I'll say, because it's funny. (laughs) But I I do think, you know, that most horror writers, you know, they're they're you know they, they sort of cackle with glee as they're working and you know I heard Stephen I heard Stephen King interviewed and they asked him you know how do you know when you have an idea for a story how do you know whether it's a good idea or not and he says well if it makes me laugh then it's a good idea well maybe you should try writing some more horror yourself and then uh, you know you'll 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 suddenly see more well adjusted to everyone <laughs> uh, uh, it'll also test that hypothesis for us so it'll be sort of a win win. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, not all horror writers are uh, are sort of creepy loners. Just me. <laughs> but yeah, but I did want to talk in talk in this episode about what kind of stuff has scared us the most. I mean, I asked uh, I asked John Langan that, and this was actually inspired. You know, there's a, a website called Temple Library Reviews that Harry Markov does, and he was nice enough to interview me for his uh, Halloween issue 
And that was the question is what scares you the most? So I was, I, I had some time to think about this and write down some of my things. And it actually, I hadn't thought about this in years and years, but there was this book I read when I was a little kid called Baleful Beasts and Eerie Creatures. Hmm. And there were, the first story in that book was called The Patchwork Monkey. And that story was so scary. I mean, <laughs> I, I actually, you know, I looked up the book on Amazon.com and it's just like review after review where people are just like, the patchwork monkey is so scary. And like, here's a typical example, uh, quote, I read The Patchwork Monkey when I was seven and slept with my parents for a month. It scared me so bad that my mom had the librarian get rid of the book. And, uh, and yeah, the, that story had the, kind of that, that same effect on me. I guess this story was just turned into a short film. Um, I'm too scared to watch it. But uh, <laughs> maybe if, if, you're, if you're not scared, you, can, you should check that out. But I was kind of thinking like, because I, I, I really avoided horror to a substantial extent for, for years after, after reading this story because it scared me so much. And I was just thinking like, man, how many thousands of dollars did the horror field lose hmm. from all the people who were just too scared by children's books like that? You know, I never, never really read, read Stephen King growing up or watched the stuff that other people my age were watching, like uh, Friday the 13th or uh, Nightman, Nightmare on Elm Street, because... <laughs> Because I was just too scared. But even even so, I would have like nightmares about Freddy Krueger just from hearing other people talk about it. You know, I uh, in, in in the house where I grew up, we sort of had a, a basement, and you could open a door into a, a back basement, and you could kind of open a door into a cellar. And in my nightmares, this would be kind of this endless sequence of chambers where you would just wander around. It was like this giant labyrinth, and Freddy Krueger would be chasing me through there. It, it didn't. It's not really scary, but I mean, the thing that. Um you know, sort of evoked the most uh, feeling of horror in me is uh, Chuck Palahniuk's story, Guts. It, it's like one of these stories where, uh, I mean, you can actually read it online, so we'll have a link for you in the show notes, but it, it's one of these stories where, like, as soon as I read it, like, it was instantly, like, sort of tattooed in my brain, and I can never forget what happens in that story. And yet, even even though I remember it so vividly, when I went back to reread it, I was, like, physically cringing again as I was reading it, because it's, like, just so horrifying, like, what happens in that story. And that's actually kind of a good example of what you were talking about with um, the sort of sense of humor and uh, and, like, how, like, Stephen King could know a story or know something's a good idea because it makes him laugh. And I, I could just I could just picture Chuck Palahniuk thinking how hilarious this is when he's writing this story because, I mean, it is kind of funny on the surface of it when you when you think about, like, sort of what's happening because it's so crazy. But, I mean, it's just so – it's it's just so, like, beautifully written the way he, he, you know, sort of puts it all together. And it's just – God, it's so – you know, I don't know. I don't want to say gut wrenching because you know uh, because of the title's guts, but I mean it is. It, it's like, um, you know, it just sort of makes you feel horrible while you're reading it. Yeah, I'm sorry. Do you want to? Yeah, well, you know, I went and saw Chuck Palahniuk give a reading uh, when mm -hmm. I was in L.A. He came to Roman's bookstore uh, in Pasadena, and you know, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. I, just, <laughs> I was just going, you know, I was just going to see any author who who appeared, and uh, so I so I show up, and there was just hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, you know, they, they sort of at Romans, they have kind of this back patio area that's really, really nice for readings. And, and it was completely full. Every ledge there's is crammed with people. And there are all these guys wearing wedding dresses, which I guess had something to do with with his, <laughs> his novel. And so so he comes out and he was asking trivia questions. And if you answered one of the trivia questions right, he had this whole bag full of inflatable arms and legs and so he was throwing these out into the audience and i think like decapitated moose heads or something too and uh, but yeah he read he read a story or he i guess he read a couple short pieces that were just yeah i mean it was just really 
difficult to, to to listen to they were so uh intense and disgusting and i guess i, I heard that people were like fainting uh mm-hmm. at his readings uh that that was sort of his goal was to uh you know see how many how many people he could uh, he could have faint at his readings yeah well i i heard specifically with guts that people that that's what was happening when he was reading that story uh, a lot that people were passing out hmm. You know, the more I think about Polonick, I mean, I haven't actually read uh, a whole lot of his um, his novels. I mean, Fight Club's one of my favorite uh, movies, but um, you know, after seeing Fight Club, I actually tried. I I went out and you know looked for a bunch of his other works, and uh, I forget which one it was. I think it was in Choke, but there was something in there. I don't even want to repeat it because it's so horrible, and I don't want to inflict it on anyone else. But there's just like there's like just this like throwaway line that he's talking about like some sick you know some sick twisted guy who like does something and i'm like oh god i just i wish i never heard that because i I would have never thought about that it's like something that you would run into in everyday life without thinking about it and then you know just sort of may even be unaware of it but if you ever knew what you had sort of blundered into you would be so revolted and disgusted that you know you'd never be able to wash it off of yourself um (laughs) and so i'm like ah just i wish i never read that and uh it's uh, terrible. And uh, I mean, that actually kind of, <laughs> I mean, I never, I, I actually didn't finish whatever book that was. If it, I mean, I think it was Choke, but, you know, I, it kind of put me off of him a little bit. Um, although, you know, I, I do love Guts, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I got to that and I was just like, I don't know. It was, uh, <laughs> it was well, a little hard to go on after that. Well, I did want to talk about this a little bit because, you know, there's this um, famous quote from Stephen King uh, where he says, quote, I recognize terror as the finest emotion. And so I will try to terrorize the reader. But if I find that I cannot terrify, I will try to horrify. And if I find that I cannot horrify, I'll go for the gross out. I'm not Hmm. proud. Hmm. And so, you know, when I first read this quote, I I thought it was pretty clever. Um, But the more I've thought about it, the more I'm, you know, I've I've just, I've never been a big fan of gross out kind of stuff. And I mean, Mm -hmm. I guess that's kind of a subjective sort of thing. I mean, I'm sure a lot of the stuff I've written, other people would read it and think it was, was gross in that way. But I, I mean, we were just talking about this in terms of movies that, I mean, you know, but when I'd go to a movie, I don't want to have to bring a barf bag with me into the theater. You know, that's not why I go to the movies. And, uh, you know, so I want things that are going to be intense and, uh, you know, frightening. And I, I, you know, I want things that are going to sort of stimulate my mind and get my heartbeat going. But, you know, the less it can involve my stomach, I think, uh, is, is generally, uh, is generally what I prefer. You know, uh, Upton Sinclair wrote a book called The Jungle about the meatpacking industry, and he was hoping that people would be so horrified by the condition of the workers that they would uh, want to reform the industry. And actually, people were so disgusted by what was going into the food that uh, that that's where the actual the motivation came. And so so Sinclair said, you know, I aimed for people's heart and I hit hearts and I hit their stomach. Hmm. And I think a lot of horror writers, you know, it seems like they ought to be aiming for the heart and but they're they're just hitting the stomach. I mean, I think it's a fine line. Um, you know, I think, you know, some element of the gross out sort of necessarily sort of seeps into horror uh, or maybe not necessarily, but, you know, often seeps into horror. And it's a fine line where it becomes like too much. And like, you know, in the case of the that one Polonic book, uh, you know, it, it was too much for me. Um, well, whereas with guts, it's like, you know, yeah, it's pretty gross, but I mean, I, I don't think that's the, that's not the thing about the story that like m- makes it indelible in my memory. You know what I mean? And it's horrifying for like other reasons as well. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's, uh, that's the problem I have with a lot of horror fiction is, um, uh, particularly with like the sort of splatterpunk mode of horror, which is just sort of goes for the, you know, o- as, as much over the top as they can go. And, um, 
you know, when it sort of gets that far into the, you know, it's just sort of disgusting stuff that, that, that I kind of lose interest because I'm more interested in the uh, cerebral part of horror. I mean, that was sort of my experience with the Saw movies, is that mm. I, I watched Saw 1 and Saw 2, and I really thought the the, the twists at the ending were, were pretty entertaining in both of them. But particularly Saw 2, it was just, it just disgusted me so much, you know, when, when Saw 3 came out. I was just like, I just, mm-hmm. I don't want to sit through this, you know. And I guess, I don't know how many Saw movies there are now, like 20 there's, it seems like. But... <laughs> I think there's six. But I mean, no, that's know, the, that's a case where you know they they act, they actually lost my business by just making it just too gross. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, a, a lot of horror fiction and uh, you know, on, on on in print and on film, um, you know, like it doesn't really scare me. Like, I mean, there's a there's a huge distinction, obviously, between being startled by something that happens on the screen and actually being scared. You know, I mean, um, because a lot of films. They sort of have all these sort of quick cuts and stuff, and, and that's just sort of a trick that startles you. But that's not really frightening you. You know, that's just like you're scared. You're like you're kind of scared for a second, but that's not like fear. Or just the really loud noises that make you jump and yeah. you see it, and you're just you're just on edge because you know they're going to blast a loud noise at you, and that's <laughs> not have, doesn't have anything to do with the movie really anyway. Right. And, and, you know, so one movie that I saw recently, actually, that I, I really found very creepy and was the closest I could ever say to actually being like scared at a movie is this movie Quarantine, um, which was based on a Spanish film called REC, which is like short for record. I, I think and I think the reason that it was so scary is because um, it does it uses the sort of first person viewpoint. So like, you know, the camera is a character in the story because it's a, a cameraman is, you know, sort of it's sort of like a reality. It's like a reality show where, uh, you know, some crazy stuff starts happening. Uh, while they're filming it and um because the camera is a character in the in the movie it kind of makes it more immediate and it makes it seem more real like i can't really say that i'm ever really scared of anything that i that i read or or you know watch on film it's it's like reality scares me well yeah that's like when i was a freshman in college there were two stories going two sort of urban legends going around that probably scared me as much as anything ever has but so the first one, there's this you know fr- college freshman, and he goes to a party and goes home with this girl, and she gives him a drink, and he drinks it and passes out, and then he wakes up in a bathtub full of ice, mm-hmm. and one of his hands has a uh, a cell phone glued to it, and in the other hand, there's a note glued to it, and the note says, "Call nine one one or you'll die," and so then uh, then he calls nine one one, and the paramedics come to get him, and then when he arrives at the hospital, they tell him that his kidneys have been stolen. And that was presented to me as a true story, and uh, <laughs> and that really that really creeped me out. Um, the other one was uh, this girl, you know, a girl in college is, is planning to spend the night at her boyfriend's dorm room. Um, but so she wa- before she walks over to his dorm, she wants to get a sweater, and so she goes back to her room and, and goes in, and her roommate is asleep, and she doesn't want to wake her roommate up, so she uh, doesn't turn on the lights, and she just walks over to her bed and picks up her sweater off the bed and walks out again. And in the morning, when she comes back. You know, there's crowds and police and crime scene tape and stuff, and and she she goes into the dorm and and she says, you know, what's what's going on? And they're like, well, this girl was horribly murdered during the night, and it's her it's her roommate, you know. And she goes, she's like, that's my room, that's my room, you know. And on the door in blood is written, "Aren't you glad you didn't turn on the lights?" Hmm. Um, but I mean, speaking of like scary stuff in real life, I mean, you I understand received some death threats from writers in hmm. your editorial capacity i mean <laughs> yeah. is that something that scared you there was only one actual death threat and and it didn't particularly scare me it just kind of pissed me off because um you know i didn't really think that the guy was going to go through with it this was when i was at fantasy and science fiction and you know obviously we had a post office box and it wasn't uh wasn't the easiest thing to do to actually find out where the office address was but 
I mean, I, I guess that could have been scary, but just like, you know, he sent one letter and then we never heard from him again. And, um, you know, I, I actually, because I was, because it pissed me off, I actually, I, I did call like the postal inspector and they referred me to the FBI and, and neither one of them seemed to think that there was anything to do about it. And so I figured that, you know, doesn't really matter. Oh, but um, I, I thought you were able to figure out who it was because it was from yeah, the well, small town and. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah, we, we, we did think we knew who it was because, uh, only one submission had come from the zip code where his letter came from. So we kind of figured it must have been that guy. But, uh, you know, even with that information, you know, the FBI uh, would not go pay him a visit or anything. But, you know, I mean, honestly, I mean, just sort of random terrorism scares me more than something like that. Because, you know, I mean, it's really easy to sort of just get pissed off at a rejection letter and and, and write some stupid response like that. Yeah, I mean, who hasn't written somebody. a death threat after getting <laughs> a rejection letter, really? Yeah. <laughs> But no, I mean, when, when I was tr- trying to think about stuff for the show, I mean, thinking about horror, it's it's really impossible for me to think about horror without thinking, like, as you're saying about just the, the TV news, you know, and mm-hmm. stuff that's just presented to you, not as horror fiction, but but reality, that but that it kind of is fiction in a way when you think about it. Um, you know, like our friend Tobias Bacal, uh, who's a writer, told me the story that when he was a teenager, his mom took him to visit some elderly relative or something. And this woman just seemed on edge the whole time. And when he, when he told me the teenager came into a room, she would kind of hurry out and seem to not want to be alone with him. <laughs> and, uh, and so Toby finally asked his mom, you know, what's, what's, what's going on here? And his, his mom just said, oh, well, you know, this, this woman, she, she hasn't left this house in, in years. And all the information she gets is the TV news. And she just imagines that all teenagers are you know dangerous criminals and so she just she's just afraid you're going to attack her if you get if you get half a chance you know wow and so that's kind of like you know like what this woman's been receiving is like horror fiction you know mm-hmm. but uh i, I had a, like another example of that of but you know i mean i think it's such a problem in in our society the way that advertisers prey on your fears mm-hmm. and try to uh, undermine your confidence and develop fears into you that they can then exploit and I had this experience where I was watching, you know, I used to watch CNN all the time because I was interested in following the news. And on CNN, it's just the same ads over and over and over and over again. You know, like that goddamn Geico lizard. <laughs> but so that, so all the ads are, 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 you know, most of the ads are like, you know, do you have too much credit card debt? You know, mm-hmm. consolidate all your bills into one low monthly payment. And it got to the point where I would literally like wake up in the middle of the night worried about my credit card bills. And I didn't even have any credit card bills, but you know, the message was just so relentless. And so I just wonder, you know, you know, cause, cause people spend so much time watching TV. I mean, doesn't the average American spend like four or six hours a day mm-hmm. watching TV or something? I mean, can you imagine if everybody had a friend, like their best friend with whom they spent four to six hours a day, who was consciously trying to make them afraid hmm. in order hmm. to exploit their fears for money? Right. Right, like, right. what what would the societal impact of that be? But that's that's basically what the situation actually is right now. Right. You know, it's funny um, that you mentioned the, that happening on CNN because um, I'm not that I watch uh, the Glenn Beck show, but uh, you know, I watch the Daily Show, and they sort of make they sort of have pointed this out. But um, on Glenn's Beck show, I guess like one of, like he has several advertisers that are are basically you know saying you know well you guys all know the apocalypse is coming, so you know we can help out with that, and it's like. Uh, there, there's one that was sort of advertising some sort of uh, uh, seed kit, you know, for in the event of the apocalypse, you use this, you have these seeds that you can sort of, you know, grow some crops after, after, you know, the world ends. Um, and then, um, and then also like, you know, there's, uh, and he's, and Beck himself has been sort of recruited as a pitch man for like, for gold, because, you know, like when, uh, 
I guess in in times of war or whatever, gold will will rise in value and it will be the only thing you know worth anything after the whole civilization collapses because you know paper money won't be worth anything and the stock market certainly won't be worth anything. But if you have gold, that'll be that'll be great. Hmm. And I mean, but like you know, it seems like the news has been so much scarier for the past uh, you know ten years or so than it was at any point that mm-hmm. I can remember. But what what impact do you think that has on horror fiction? I mean, do you think? I mean, you sort of talked about right when you were editing FNSF that right after September 11th, you got just a flood of mm-hmm. like more downbeat kind of stories. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think the it, it certainly feeds into everyone's anxieties. Um, you know, uh, I mean, specifically after 9/11, there was a lot of post-apocalyptic fiction, and so and uh, and the stuff that you would see on the news was certainly going to feed into that. You know, with all the you know sort of these threats of terrorism that you know, the government is uh, investigating and all this kind of th- stuff. It's like, you know, if, uh, if they didn't keep mentioning it on the news, people would probably sort of, it would probably sort of slip into the back of your mind and it wouldn't be weighing on you. But uh, with the constant reminder of it in the newspapers and um, on the TV news, it's like you can't escape it. And so I think a lot of writers were just sort of channeling that into um, fiction, which, you know, like as we were saying before, horror writers do t- uh, maybe typically do that. And that's why they can sort of have a jolly disposition. Um <laughs> Well, but so. so, I mean, it seems like maybe scary times make writers want to write scary stuff and express that. But does does it make readers want to read scary stuff? Or do you think, because I've heard like during the Depression and stuff, everybody wanted to watch comedy movies because they wanted an mm. escape from the scariness. I mean, how do you think that readers react to scary times? I, I don't know. I think readers want to read more about it, too. I mean, and, you know, I mean, I can certainly say from my own experience that like my anthologies like wastelands and the living dead i mean you know they're both they're both very popular and you know it seems like that that's probably not a coincidence that you know that people are are interested in this in in this topic uh even though it's they're sort of downbeat and scary um ideas in those books well i mean speaking of like the government and terrorism and stuff i mean one phenomenon we've had for for the past years is this color-coded terrorist warning Mm -hmm. system and you know, um, Tom Ridge, the former head of Homeland Security, wrote a book recently where he sort of came out and said, you know, it always it always seemed to me when I was issuing these things that it had more to do with politics than any actual information we had. And and everyone's kind of like, yeah, Tom, we know, we know mm-hmm. it's OK. But I mean, it really did seem like the government was intentionally using this chart to to stoke people's fears, you know, like whenever the president's uh, poll numbers were going down or whenever there was mm-hmm. a big scandal or something, the terrorist warning would suddenly go up again and it actually kind of occurred to me that i i actually would kind of regard the the color-coded terrorist warning chart as maybe like the greatest piece of horror fiction (laughs) of the last 10 years in terms of you know scaring the most people in terms of you know being being fiction completely made up and scaring the most number of people but i think there's a lot of lessons for horror writers in that and one of them is that if you were if your goal is to scare the most number of people you might think that you would turn the warning all the way up to the highest point and mm-hmm. just leave it there right and you're like that'll scare people the most we have you have to be as afraid as possible but actually that doesn't work because then there's no change right whereas it's a lot more effective to raise the level and scare people and then bring it down again and wait a while and people sort of uh let, let their guard down and mm-hmm. then it's a news story when it goes back up again and just keep doing that and it seems to me like a lot of writers they just try to put in as much scary just sort of like cram as much scary stuff in as possible or exciting stuff or funny stuff you know whatever it is without having those kind of peaks and troughs that give the audience a break give them time to to kind of let their guard down so to speak 
even in comedy too i i um a, a student in the program i was in had gone to see the guy who wrote a uh, little miss sunshine and his philosophy was that what's wrong with most comedies is that they try to make every scene as funny as possible and so usually like the first four or five scenes in a movie are really really funny and then after a while you just get less and less entertained because you know when every scene's full of hilarious things it, it just becomes exhausting and his philosophy was to make the beginning of the movie more or less serious you know have the first half of the movie be serious and have slightly funnier and funnier things happen and then have the funniest thing happen at the end um and i thought that that that, that, that was really interesting you know and, and sort of i would say michael bay movies are kind of the the same thing with action where it, you're trying to turn the Mm-hmm. turn it up to red for every single scene and you know it just it just pummels you it just becomes too much so i think that's one lesson from the terrorist uh alerts and then the other is is what we call in the trade hand waving um and this is not something i would ever do myself but i've heard other writers maybe would do this is if you have something in your story say you have you have point a and point c that are both really good and the only way to get between them is to go through point b and point b doesn't really make a lot of sense and so you would have something really big happen <laughs> around that same time so that people are, are too distracted to uh to pay attention to the the maybe the little plot hole or something that that you want people to to be distracted from and so we call this hand waving because you know stage magicians will wave their hands around so that you're watching their hands and not you know what else is going on on stage so it's kind of like the same thing with the, the the color chart is that you know you don't just do it randomly you just wait until you have a big scandal that you want people not to be paying attention to and then you raise it you know, I was just thinking about uh, another thing that sort of really scared me um, from when I was a kid. Uh, did you ever see a movie called Dreamscape? No. I don't think it was specifically supposed to be horror, but it, it was a science fiction movie. But it introduced a concept to me that I had never that had never occurred to me before. But the idea I don't know if this is actually, you know, has any basis in reality. But in the movie, the idea was that if you died in your dream, you would actually die in real life. Um, and that's just like freaked me out so much. Like, I mean, I would like, I would actually like lay up in bed sometimes like scared, you know, how am I going to navigate this dreamscape and, 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 you know, not die. I mean, that, uh, that, that always freaked me out. Like did, so, I mean, did you ever come across that concept before? Oh, sure. I mean, when I was a kid, yeah. people used to say all the time that if you actually died in your, you know, that you would always wake up, mm-hmm. but if you, if you weren't to wake up and you died in, in your dream, you would die in real life. Uh, so I mean, what other what other kind of concepts or whatever do, uh, do you find scary? I mean, um, I mean, in addition to oh, something like well, I have a, I have a list. Okay. Um, right. Well, like monkeys. <laughs> what really? Yeah, man. Like, well, like that. I told you that patchwork monkey man. I was just completely <laughs> scarred by that. And then you know, Stephen King had his story of the monkey that that yeah. creeped me out too. I mean, there's something just creepy to me about monkeys because they're kind of like people except wrong. Um, and then clowns, of course, mm. you know, dolls. Well, I mean, are you making a distinction between creepy and, and actually like these are things that scare you? These are like, no, seriously, one of the scariest movies I ever saw was called Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Mm-hmm. Have you ever seen this? Uh, I can't remember if I've actually seen it. I mean, I'm aware of it. I mean, I don't know if if I watched it now. I don't know. I mean, I think it's supposed to be funny because, you know, like there's these killer clowns from outer space and they like cocoon people in cotton candy and then suck their blood out with curly straws mm-hmm. and you know the only way to kill them is to shoot them in their big red noses which then explode and so like when i think about all that it seems really funny but that man that movie just creeped me out and it's just because clowns are just so freaking creepy i can't like why would you ever let a little kid why would you ever expose a little kid to a clown you know <laughs> and um you know like there's this uh 
this great Michael Chabon story um, called The God of Dark Laughter. It's it's a Lovecraft pastiche, and the premise is that there's kind of a um, a secret race of clown-like people, and they hide among circuses because then they just look like clown. They look like all the other clowns, and and they don't stand out. And there's this cult that is trying to kill them all, and this cult believes that when the last of these clown people was killed, the world will end, and or you know like a, a Cthulhu type god will will come to Earth, and the world will end. And, and there's a, I think there's a monkey in it, if I'm remembering correctly. But it's just I really, really enjoyed that story, and, and he published it in the New Yorker. And I just, I just love that Michael Chabon could get a uh, a Lovecraft pastiche about a clown murdering cult published in the New Yorker. Like one of the other things that actually like really freaks me out is bugs, like in in, in real life. Hmm. Um, and uh, it, it kind of extended to um, you know the the video game Fallout Three. It's 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 for, it's like a first person shooter, and so. Um, you know, although I mean, it's a role playing game, but the engine is for, is a first person shooter engine. And uh, so like as you're walking around this desolate landscape, you know, stuff can scare you, you know, um, and, but it's usually just like startles you. But there there's like these gigantic uh, these gigantic um, uh, cockroaches in there. They called rad rad roaches or something, you know, and they make this skittering noise. And it's oh, my God, it would drive me crazy. It's just like freaking me out the whole time. Like I'm walking through some, you know, some abandoned building and it's like it's full of these rad roaches and they're just skittering and skittering and skittering. And I can't see where they are because it's dark and, and, you know, they're, you know, they sort of blend in. And, oh, man. And, and that, of course, reminds me of George R. R. Martin's uh, story, Sand Kings, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, is one of the creepiest stories I've read. And actually, I was in a, an airport and our flight was delayed for hours and hours. And so I, you know, I went to the bookstore and bought a book of uh, Hugo Award winning short stories. And, and that's where I first read Sand Kings. And it creeped me out so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, my my skin was all <laughs> tingling. And, you know, that's just like the least likely place you're going to be scared is in an airport surrounded by hundreds of people in the middle of the afternoon when you're bored and waiting for your flight and mm-hmm. the fact that that story was able to just creep me out so much in that situation i think is is really just a testament to just how how effective it is it's funny how like, like you know that's a science fiction story so that just got that, that gets me thinking about sort of some of the some of the ways uh you can find like just the most horrifying things in uh, like sort of out of the typical horror context like like for instance greg egan has this story called learning to be me and it's it's in this future where you know everybody is implanted with this uh thing they call like a gem or something you know but it's basically like a computer backup for your for your personality for the essence of you you know so that like you would be able to live on beyond your body and everybody in this world would switch over from their biological brain to the gem brain at some point in their lives and uh, and and this was something that the narrator was very concerned about because he was thinking as i think is uh, completely warranted will i actually die and a copy of me will just be living on or will i actually live on after this and the way the story is constructed just does such a perfect job of conveying that sense of dread that he would have, or at least that I feel I would have, uh, you know, in trying to make that decision to switch over to this, you know, sort of this computer backup of your of your brain. You know, just because like that, I mean, that's like a concept that I've seen in science fiction before and I just never have bought it. And, you know, it's like it's fun to play with the concept sometimes because you can tell interesting stories using it. But I just never believe that it would it could be used as like a, a way to get to immortality and this was the first story that i remembered seeing that actually explored it in this sort of horrific way well i mean we've been talking about you know the difference between horror and fiction and, and horror in real life but it really seems to me that for a lot of people there's not such a big distinction between fiction and real life mm-hmm. and like there was this guy i met in la and he was a self-described fundamentalist 
And, and so he said to me, I have this argument for why my beliefs are true that you just, you absolutely will not be able to refute. Hmm. And I was like, okay, okay, yeah, sure. What, what is it? You know, now I'm expecting him to, to talk about <laughs> Thomas Aquinas or irreducible complexity or uh, <laughs> the anthropic principle or something like that. And he's like, okay, so there's this guy I know and he can perform exorcisms. And so he says to me, you know, go to the store and get some eggs, make sure that they're, there's nothing, they're just normal eggs. And so I went to the store and I just got these normal eggs and yeah, they were just normal eggs. And so he took me to this house where this woman was possessed by a demon and he, I gave him one of the eggs and he like sucked the demon out of her body and put it in the egg. <laughs> and then he broke the egg open. And it was like full of like black goo. And he's like, so what do you say to that? <laughs> um, you know, he's like, how can you, ref you know, how can you not believe in the supernatural after you've seen something like that? And so, I mean, it just seems to me like thinking about this guy, I'm like, this guy is disconnected from reality hmm. on three different levels that I can identify. Right. Like a, he thinks that there are demons. B, he thinks that you can take demons and put them in an egg. And three, he thinks he can tell me this story and I'm not just going to laugh at him. <laughs> right it seems like these are all just disconnected from reality but i mean yeah i mean it does so I'm, I'm thinking about this guy and i'm like wow you know like i can go to a supernatural horror movie and be scared and be excited and and then the movie's over and i walk back outside of the theater and i'm not in a supernatural horror movie anymore but this guy like for him the movie never ends mm -hmm. you know the whole world is like a supernatural horror movie and he's surrounded by demons and and stuff and i was kind of thinking like it would be kind of, it would be kind of, I mean, because I like supernatural horror, it would be kind of cool. It's, it's almost like, like his life is like a <laughs> live action role playing game, right? Where you're so deep in your character, you don't even realize that it's a role playing game. And so I was thinking it would, it would be kind of cool if you could take a drug or something where it would give you that guy's worldview <laughs> for 24 hours or something. You could just walk around like having crazy thoughts that don't make any sense. <laughs> and then you would return to reality. And you could tell your friends, like, oh, my God, you know, dude, you won't believe all the crazy stuff I believed. I, I thought that you could, like, take demons and put them in eggs. And, <laughs> and your friends are all like, no, no way. You're like, no, dude, I totally believe that. So it sounds like you're a real believer in uh, better living through chemistry. <laughs> you, uh, you brought this up on the show before, how you wished there was a drug that would do something or other. I don't remember what it was, but. Well, you know, I, I grew up reading Philip K. Dick books. Yeah, so yeah. I guess it's I'm inevitable. All, I'm, all, I'm all about the, the drugs causing, uh, you know, creating science fictional uh, conceits. So what I want to know is, uh, you know, what did you say to the guy? Because he said, well, what do you say to that? Well, I said, I mean, I, I'm, I'm quite convinced that this guy was pulling your leg, you know, or, uh, you know, hoaxing you, um, which happens so much. I mean, just because of like through people I know and things, I just hear about hoaxes like this being exposed day after day after day after day. And like with a guy like that, you kind of don't know. I mean, the, the hoax, the hoaxer, I mean, or maybe the guy actually can perform exorcisms and put demons into eggs. I mean, <laughs> you know. I would, I would love to see that um, experiment performed under laboratory conditions, you know. But um, it seems like in these cases that there are kind of two scenarios where, you know, A, a there's just kind of con artists who just, you know, want to do tricks and fool people and they get a um, thrill out of it and maybe they want to, like, bilk money out of people and stuff. Um, but the other, th the other one I think is a lot more interesting is, is what people call pious fraud, where... You know, the, the, it, it's sort of like what leads people to streak oil um, under the eyes of religious statues to make it look like they're weeping, um, mm -hmm. to make it look like it's a miracle. Um, but what motivates people in those cases is often they want more people coming to their church and they're upset that more people aren't coming to their church. 
and they think if there's a miracle, more people will come to the church. And so they decide to do it themselves. But rather than thinking of it as a fraud, they think of it as, well, I'm doing the right thing. And God approves. And in a way, God is acting through me to do this. So in a way, it actually kind of is a miracle, right? And, uh, and so I think a large proportion of, of those things, you know, the, the person is, is kind of acting out of misguided but well-intentioned motives. Uh, so, yeah, you know, just when John Langan was talking about how he sent this story to this magazine and they told him that he had to read Strunk and White, <laughs> I just wanted to talk about that because, you know, all, all the whole time I was growing up, everyone was like, Strunk and White, Strunk and White, you have to read Strunk and White. And, and I would read it. And I'm like, yeah, this is all right. Some of this stuff I don't agree with. I would actually be curious to go back and I haven't looked at it for a long time, what I, what I make of it now. But somebody just recently linked to this article I thought was really, really interesting about Strunk and White. Uh, and this is a viewpoint I had never heard expressed before. Um, but this is an article by Jeffrey K. Pullum on the Chronicle of Higher Education. And the article is called 50 Years of Stupid Grammar Advice. Hmm. And uh, he really slams Strunk and White. He basically argues that they, uh, they don't really know anything about grammar and that all their grammar advice is wrong and that they <laughs> don't even follow their own grammar advice in their own book and that a lot of these rules are just completely arbitrary and they don't conform to the usage of English throughout history, um, you know, by all the greatest writers. So I definitely recommend people check that out and get a, an alternate viewpoint. Yeah. I mean, grammar was always something I just kind of felt like you have to learn, you have to learn to navigate it by feel, you know, I mean, you have to just read a lot of books and sort of absorb the way English sentences are constructed by doing that, you know? And then once you sort of have this innate feel for it, then you can sort of, you know, maybe check a reference book like Elements of Style to see if there's anything that you can sort of tweak to make it better. But I mean, you have to be able to know when to say, okay, well, no, this is not, I'm not going to follow that advice because it's better this way. I mean, as if you're a proficient reader, you should be able to tell if a sentence is constructed properly, you know, it's it's the same thing with like, uh, like, you know, Microsoft Word and other word processors, they have a grammar checker. And it's like, okay, well, uh, I mean, I've seen people sort of slavishly uh, or be slavishly devoted to that thing. And I'm like, well, it's only ever useful at all. If you already know grammar really well, in which case, you know, it might actually point out something you're like, oh, yeah, I messed that up. But then like, if you don't know grammar, and you just listen to it, it's just going to completely mangle your prose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I sort of have this policy that i won't follow any uh ostensible grammar rule that makes it sound like english is my third language <laughs> and a lot of grammar grammar rules are like that um you know like um, um with the, the rule about not ending a sentence with a preposition you know winston churchill famously mocked this by saying that this is the sort of nonsense up with which i will not put <laughs> and it turns out that you know the more you study it the more a lot of these grammar rules were just invented in the 19th century by essentially misguided people who were trying to make English grammar look more like Latin grammar because they mm -hmm. just liked Latin. And um, actually, this is something else that, that Ursula, Ursula K. Le Guin discusses in her, her book, The Language of the Night, about sort of language in, in writing. Um, was the first time actually I'd come across this. But, you know, English, the English language desperately, desperately needs a gender indeterminate singular pronoun. And for all of history, <laughs> it's been they. And this is how everybody talks and has talked throughout all of English language history. And relatively recently, some people decided that they shouldn't be permissible as a gender indeterminate singular pronoun, which leaves the English language without one. 
uh, or you know, you're supposed to just say he, maybe, uh, even if you don't actually mean he. And it's, it just creates this huge problem. And so as a writer and just as a person, as a podcaster, <laughs> it, just give, it just leaves you with this huge problem where people have this idea of what the rule is. And even if they're wrong, they don't know that they're wrong. So you have to say, well, do I follow this stupid rule that's wrong and have people think that they're smarter than me or not? You know, it's, it's just very frustrating. Well, that's one of the things that you have the power to do as a writer is, um, you know, if you just use... Uh, if you use grammar how you think it should be used and, you know, in, in cases like that, you know, just insist on using, you know, they instead of saying he or she or whatever, um, you know, eventually that sort of thing will come to change. You know, if enough writers sort of agree with you and they all start using the words the same way that you're using them, you know, I mean, eventually it'll just become the norm. Well, I, I wonder how many people are listening to this and are, are quaking in terror at the thought of people like me having the power to determine... <laughs> word usage and grammar usage going forward. And to those people, I say, you should be afraid. Be very afraid. And that was our show. Our scary, scary show. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. If you'd like to share your thoughts about any of the topics we discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. Just go to Tor.com and click on Podcasts, and then Geek's Guide to the Galaxy Episode 13 and post a comment there. And be sure to join us next week when we'll be interviewing Holly Black, best-selling author of The Spiderwick Chronicles. Her new book, White Cat, deals with a contemporary world in which magic is prohibited by law until only criminals have magic. See you then. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Tor.com. For this episode's show notes or to subscribe to this podcast, visit Tor.com and click on Podcasts. For more information about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarrcurrently.com. Music and voiceover produced by Deadsville 9 Entertainment. If you've enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.